The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. And this is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. It's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saves us by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Before we begin our study this morning, we need to make sure we're in fellowship, so we always have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to uh, get in fellowship with the Lord, operate under the ministry of the Holy Spirit, the teaching ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, called in the Scripture, filling by the Spirit and walking by the Spirit. So we always have a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word this morning. Thank you for a free nation where we have the ability to gather, to study, and to be unhindered by any governmental interference. We continue to pray for our leaders, for our nation, that you would keep us uh, safe and secure that you would give our wisdom's leader our, our, our leaders wisdom in order to carry out this war against terrorism. Father, we pray for us that as we study your word that this not might not be simply an academic exercise, but that it might be a time for us to understand more fully your plan for our life, that we might be challenged to press on to spiritual maturity, that we might be ready to stand before you at the judgment seat of Christ. We pray all of these things now in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4. As I have done the last several classes and will continue to do, I want to begin with an overview of John's argument. John's argument. What I mean by argument is not argument like you have a disagreement but argument in the sense of presenting a case. And every author's rights to present a case when you were in junior high or high school, you started thinking in terms of thesis statements. You understood that people had uh, a major uh, thesis that, that they might have in a paper or essay that they were trying to prove. And that's true in most of the literature of the New Testament that these authors are writing in order to make a case for something. Now, the main idea in these, this, this core section, the body of the epistle, as we have stated, began in verse 28 of chapter 2, 
where John states, and now little children, abide in him. Key word, abide. Now, by addressing them as little children, he indicates that they are believers. He is viewing them as believers, and as believers, they are commanded to abide. They may or may not abide. As a believer, you may not abide. That is in contra- uh, contrast to what some people think, and that is because of a superficial understanding of things in this epistle, they have been led to the conclusion that abiding is something that is common to all believers. But that is not true. Some believers abide, those others do not. Little children abide in him that when he appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed at his coming. That's the idea. How do we prepare for the coming of Christ, which occurs for us at the rapture? when we will be absent from the body face-to-face with the Lord, and that will be immediately followed by the judgment seat of Christ. Now, we have developed John's thinking along this line, and starting in verse 1 of chapter 3, down through the first part of 10, he emphasizes uh, righteousness, the doing of righteousness as evidence of abiding, and this and another key word that is used here is the idea of manifesting, or phanerao, which means to reveal. That's the same word that he used in 2.28, that when he appears. So when he appears, we need to be ready because our works will also be manifest, First Corinthians chapter 3, at the judgment seat of Christ. Then in 10b, he says, not only is there the doing of righteousness, experiential righteousness, but there is also loving one another. 10b, he says, whoever does not practice or do righteousness, practice is a poor translation, is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. Of God, as we have seen, I keep emphasizing it in case you missed it, does not mean salvation. It has to do with whether or not you're living in that abiding relationship with Christ or not. He is talking about believers. Whoever does not do righteousness is not of God. You're not living in relationship to God at that point, but you're still saved. And Nor is he who does not love his brother. Now, this is a point we're going to see is you have two people. You have person A, person B. Person A is in the position of exercising this command of love. Now, if person A isn't loving, is hating person B, some people will say, well, that just shows they're not really a Christian. So that means that person A is really an unbeliever. Person B, then, is the believer. Ah, but if this person A is an unbeliever, then person B isn't his brother. And the whole focus here is on what's going on inside of the family. So obviously, person A has to be a believer. So a believer can either do righteousness or not do righteousness. A believer can either love or hate. And then at the end of chapter 3 and the beginning of chapter 4, we see that there's another evidence of the the abiding believer, and that is that he is exercising discernment. 
And I'll go on to add another level to that, that exercising discernment and evaluating a teacher to see whether or not his doctrine stacks up to the Word of God. Remember in Acts, the um, writer of Acts, Luke, praised the Bereans because they did not take the Apostle Paul's word for it, but they searched the Scriptures daily to see that what he said was so. Now, in context, what happened was Paul came into town, and Paul starts teaching that the Old Testament prophecies indicate that Jesus is the Messiah. So they'd go home, and they'd study the Old Testament prophecies, and come back. They didn't take, and this is the Apostle Paul. This isn't some guy who fell off the watermelon truck yesterday. You know, this is the Apostle Paul, and the Apostle Paul recognizes that it's an important factor for people to exercise discernment, and so he praised them because they didn't just take his word at it. I mean, and if we're going to take anybody's word for something, it would be the Apostle Paul's. But they didn't take his word at it. They searched the Scriptures daily. So discernment is another function of abiding. It is evaluating teaching to make sure it is doctrinally correct. And that brings us to another point. The whole epistle is talking about fellowship. And a key element in fellowship is not just rapport. It's not just compatibility. It's not just relationship. But it's something that has been denigrated for the last 30 years in evangelical circles. It's having correct doctrine. If you don't have correct doctrine, I don't care how warm and fuzzy the fellowship is. I don't care how good the coffee is. I don't care how... Wonderful the baked goods are. You can't have Christian fellowship if somebody screwed up on their doctrine. Now, as I pointed out last time, that doesn't mean they have to have every minutia correct. They don't have, but it's the, the emphasis here is on basics related to Trinity, basics relating to the person and work of Jesus Christ, who he is as the God-man, what he did on the cross in terms of substitutionary atonement, who and what man is as a fallen creature in need of salvation, and an eternal destiny in the lake of fire. All that is part of the basic doctrine that is understood there, not that you agree in just how every particular passage in Scripture is to be uh, interpreted. Now, we're in. last time we covered that, the section dealing with discernment, and it ends at the end of verse of that section, verse 6, by saying, We are of God. He who knows God hears us. The we here must refer back to the apostles. Remember, I made a strong point at the beginning of our study in First John that when John used the first person plural pronoun we or us, he was talking about we the apostles. He never changes that. He never talks about he never begins to talk about we, the body of Christ. We, you and me, we meaning me, John, the writer, and you, the audience. He never includes them in his meaning of we. He's exclusively talking about we, the apostles. And he's here it's the same thing, that apostolic body. He says, we are of God. He who knows God hears us. See, what the problem in the church was there were false teachers coming in who were rejecting apostolic authority. They were teaching false things about the person of Christ, that he had not come in the flesh, that he was not the Messiah, that he was not eternal. And John says, we are of God. He who knows God hears us, not just hearing in terms of being uh, 
sensorily uh, uh, stimulated in the midst of the congregation because they they um, have their auditory nerves vibrated by somebody's voice, but that they are actually listening and understanding and positively responding to the apostle. We are of God. He who knows God hears us. He who is not of God, that is the person who's not loving, not believing, not walking, but is still a believer, does not hear us, that is, these false teachers. And so once again we see the indication that it's very likely that many of these false teachers were believers. That is not what is usually thought of in uh, most interpretations of First John. They think that they go back to the statement that they went out from us but were not of us. They, they take that us there to refer to us, meaning us, the broader body of Christ, or us, the congregation. And the us there is apostolic again. We have to keep that very consistent interpretation of that first person plural pronoun as being the apostolic body. Once these false teachers apparently were associated intimately with the body of apostles in Jerusalem, but they left. They had disagreements over doctrine, and they went out using those credentials of having been in Jerusalem at one time as still uh, their credentials. And so they would say, look, we were ordained by the uh, apostles in Jerusalem, so listen to us. But then they would teach false doctrine. You have people who still do that today. They ride along on the coattails of some pastor they once studied under or some teacher they once listened to, and then they use that to give themselves some kind of credit, and yet they're no longer teaching true doctrine. And people fall for it all the time because they have never learned how to think. That's one of the jobs of a pastor is not just to teach you what to think, but teach you how to think so that you can fulfill the mandates of First John 4, 1 through 6, and that is to evaluate everyone who comes along in terms of their thinking. Remember, the concept of spirit here is not a demon, not some angel, or any of that kind of garbage. We studied that last time. I don't want to be distracted by that. Uh, most people just don't know enough about Greek or language, and they fall into that, that kind of a mystical trap. But uh, the, the concept is clear by the time you get to verse 6, that those who are of God hear us, those who are not of God do not hear us. And it's by this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. That is the thinking, the attitude, the mentality of truth and the mentality of error, the kinds of thoughts that go along with that. And that's a clear meaning for the word spirit as it's used in Greek. So, the point I'm making here in terms of structure is back in 1 John 3, it talks about doing righteousness. Then starting in 10b, it talked about love. Then it talked about one way of manifesting that love in terms of exercising discernment. And now in verse 7, Paul, I mean John comes back to talking about love. But I want you to, I want to skip ahead. This morning we're going to look at these verses down through, through verse 12 or verse 11 probably, and then in 12, I want to see. I want you to see where we're going because this is so important to understand how he weaves back and forth these ideas. Verse 12 states, no one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us. There's a relationship. Now, abiding can't be 
salvation, because then salvation would be based not on just trusting Christ as Savior, but on loving. Now, remember back in 324, John had said, He who keeps his commandments abides in him, and he in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. So there's a connection between abiding in Christ, the Spirit abiding back in us, that mutuality here. And then he's going to add to it in verse 12 that uh, it's related to love. So he's connecting these things together. In actuality, 12 through 16 is sort of a summary where he pulls all the threads together for us again. And there he's going to say, if we love one another, God abides in us. His love has been perfected in us. That's that verb, teleao, meaning to bring to completion. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. See how that ties abiding in 2.28 to the spirit in 2.24 and uh, again to th- four, I mean 3.24 and then to 4.12 and then in verse 14, and we have seen and testified that the Father has seen has sent the Son as Savior of the world. Whoever confesses, that is, admits that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him. Notice how that brings in the thread of the testing of evaluating doctrine related to the person of Christ in the first part of chapter 4. And then in verse 16, And we have known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love, and he who abides in love abides in God and God in him. So he pulls it all together. So we may think that we've got these things don't relate, but John's going to take this these different threads and he's weaving them together to give us an understanding that we have to be ready for the judgment seat of Christ because in verse 17 he's going to say love has been perfected among us. Same word teleao means to bring to completion, bring to maturity. When love is brought to maturity among us, that we may have what? Boldness in the day of judgment. See, 1 John 2.28 says, Abide in him so you won't be ashamed at the judgment seat of Christ. And then he's going to come right back to that in verse 17, that if you want to avoid being judged uh, negatively at the judgment seat of Christ and losing rewards, then you better hit that level of spiritual maturity where the function of personal love for God and impersonal love for all mankind uh, characterizes your life. That's where he's going. So that means that now that you kind of have a little more of the overview, uh, when we look at the verses from 7 through 11, it's going to make a little more, a little more sense how this fits his structure. Let's start with a few details. First John 4, 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from the source of God, ultimate source of God, ek plus the genitive, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Boys, there's some interesting stuff going on in this structure. First of all, he addresses them as beloved, agapetoi, and that means that they, he views them all as believers. He's not looking at them as unbelievers. That doesn't mean there might not be an unbeliever in the crowd, but he's talking to them as believers. So what he is saying is doctrine related to spiritual life, not salvation. He says, let us love one another. Put the verse up on the screen. Let us love one another. Here is basic key command here that is repeated again and again and again 
in almost every significant epistle of the New Testament, every writer, Peter, Paul, and John, all uh, relate this, this commandment. It is a first-person plural, present active subjunctive. Now, the subjunctive is the mood of potentiality, but when you have a first-person present subjunctive, it's like a first-person imperative. See, in English, we don't have a first-person imperative. We just have a second-person imperative. You tell somebody else, you do this or you don't do this. You love one another. You do this. Uh, you pray, whatever it might be, whatever the command might be. Read your Bible. Be in Bible class. Whatever the command is, it's second-person. But in other languages, you also have third-person and first-person imperatives. And as a to communicate that imperatival idea in the Greek, the uh, the the use is uh, a first-person present subjunctive, and it is called a, a hortatory subjunctive, which is used to encourage, or urge, or command someone to join the speaker in a course of action. So the speaker views himself as part of the uh, group and is in challenging his readers to join with him in fulfilling the command to love one another. The first person plural us here is going to emphasize the function of the body of Christ. Let us love one another. That loving one another is a function of the body of Christ. The reason I'm emphasizing that is because when you look at a number of the passages, and I do not intend to go through all of them this morning related to uh, the command to love, it is a function of the body of Christ. Now, for some reason, I think it's related to a couple of cultural factors, primarily that in the United States of America, we are very proud of our independence and our individuality. Now, that is a concept that is related to our culture. You go into other cultures, the individuals in that culture are not as individualistic, they are not as independent, and they are not as assertive of their own individual rights and positions. Now, so that is a cultural concept. Now, if you bring that cultural concept of independence almost to the point of isolationism, into the church, what you're doing is you're importing a human viewpoint category into Christianity. And that has happened. That's part and parcel of evangelicalism in America. And it is a negative because the emphasis in scriptures on the body of Christ and the interdependence of believer with other believers, which runs 180 degrees opposite the American ideal of independence and isolation. Just let me do my own thing. That is not a category that would fit in the scriptures. And this is indicated by this verb, I mean this noun, one another, this collective pronoun. We are to love one another. In order to emphasize this and to come to an understanding of it, I want to trace it through the New Testament. And let's start by going back to Romans chapter 12, verse 3. Romans chapter 12. Verse 3, the context of Romans 12 is on the application in the believer's spiritual life. The first 11 chapters of Romans focus more on doctrine as per what God has done for us in salvation and the spiritual life. 
And starting in chapter 12, verse 1, there is a shift to, okay, now that this is true, this is how it impacts the way we live. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, Paul begins in verse 1, present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service, and do not be conformed to cosmic thinking, that is the meaning, do not be conformed to this world, uh, but be transformed by the renovation of your thinking. Change the way you think about things that you may demonstrate what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. That's the topic statement. Now he's going to apply that in relationship to understanding the body of Christ in verse 3. For I say through the grace given to me to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly. Now, that's a bad translation. Sober doesn't mean the absence of alcohol. It means to think objectively. That's the Greek concept, is to think objectively about yourself. Don't be overbloated in your own estimation, but think honestly, objectively. Don't uh, assert yourself. Don't get sucked into arrogance and a self-absorption, but to think objectively. Verse 4, For as we have many members in one body... But all the members do not have the same function, so we being many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Notice there's our first use of the word one another. We are members of one another. There is an interdependence in the body of Christ. That means that we are going to have involvements with other believers. It's not just, well, all I need to do is go to Bible class, sit in a pew, take notes, and go home, and never blink at anybody, never get to know any other believers, never know what's going on within the dynamics of the local church body. It's called the local church body because it is the individual instantiation of the overall body of Christ. And if you think that that means that you can just be an island unto yourself in a local body, then what you are doing is operating on a cosmic American ideal of individualism that is cosmic thinking. What do we just read in Romans 12 too? Don't be conformed to this world. There's an idea that needs to be evaluated and expunged from our thinking. There are too many people who want to do it. That doesn't mean that you have to be a buddy-buddy with every other person in the same way. That's not true either. But that there is a mutuality and a mutual dependence uh, among members of the body of Christ. Verse 6. And each person has different roles, different functions, different gifts, so that there is a, that mutual dependence as each one functions according to their gifts. Verse 5 states, So we being many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another, having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us. Let us use them, if prophecy, then prophesy in proportion to our faith, or ministry, let us use it in our ministering, he who teaches in teaching, he who exhorts in exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, and he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. There's a brief uh, summary of some spiritual gifts. Everybody has at least one. Uh, some people may have the gift of giving, and one person may have it to one one degree. Another person may have it to a different degree. One person may have the gift of teaching. Some have a uh, more of the gift of teaching than others do. God gives at different gifts, and he gives to different degrees. But they are all designed for the purpose of serving one another in the body of Christ. So we have an emphasis on the fact that we are 
one body and members of one another. Then in verse 5, we have the statement, So we who are many are one body in Christ, individually members of one another. And then we'll come down to verse 10, and we read, Be kindly, or, or be devoted, King James says be kindly affectionate. It's not the idea of affection at all, but it is the idea of making, being attentive to and being interested in one another. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. It has the idea of a priority, that this is something that we need to think about. Get outside of yourself. Get outside of your own problems, your own work problems, marriage problems, parenting problems, uh, money problems, whatever they might be, and put your attention on the fact that there are others in the body of Christ who may have particular uh, problems and needs, and that as you grow and mature as a believer, you can minister in those areas. So we're to be devoted to one another in brotherly love, give preference to one another in honor. That's part of what impersonal love is. It doesn't mean they deserve it. It doesn't mean only to those people who are wonderful personalities, the kind of people you want to spend time with, take home for lunch, but it means to respect them and give them honor simply because they are another believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, verse 10 goes on to, uh, or verse 12 goes on to read uh, re- that we are to serve the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer, distributing to the needs of the saints, and given to hospitality. And you will see those basic ideas repeated again and again in contexts that relate to love. Then skip down to verse uh, let's go to first, just pick up the context, verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. That is, that when someone is treating you harshly, someone is bitter towards you, vindictive towards you, somebody is doing things that may cost you money, may cost you your job, may cost you your marriage, whatever the situation may be, you are to bless them, not to respond in anger, bitterness, hostility, but to bless them. Uh, verse 15, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. Verse 16, be of the same mind toward one another. That means to have this same mind, which is the mind of Christ. Jesus Christ had the same objective mentality toward everyone, whether it was the Pharisees who were in opposition to him or whether it was those who were followers of him. He thought on the basis of doctrine. That's what that means, is to think objectively on the basis of doctrine toward everyone. And the Bible is going to define our behavior and the categories of our behavior in every kind of social situation. That's the emphasis in that particular verse. Paul goes on to talk about this again in Romans 14, verses 13 and 19. There he states in Romans 14, 13, Therefore, let us not judge one another. So this is a negative in reference to one another. That is, believers, we are not to run down, to gossip, to malign, to abuse one another verbally, to repeat stories about one another. That's what it means not to judge one another. It doesn't mean to uh, not evaluate on the basis of doctrine. If it did, then then the Bible would contradict itself in reference to 1 John chapter 4, verse 1. So we are to not judge one another 
or to put an obstacle or stumbling block in some other believer's place. Now, I always liked what Dr. Ryrie said one time, in order to put a stumbling block in front of somebody, they have to be moving. Think about that. You know, you always hear people say something about some gray area in life, like uh, drinking a glass of wine, or, or for some people it's going to movies or playing cards or any number of things that legalists always come up with is some kind of a sin. They'll say, well, don't do that because it might cause somebody to stumble. You know, there, there's a generality in that kind of a statement that you don't find in the Scriptures. The Scripture talks about a specific case. And in terms of putting a stumbling block in somebody's, in another believer's way, this isn't the fact that you may go out in a restaurant and have a glass of wine and somebody across the way might see you having a glass of wine and my gosh, they're, they're an alcoholic and so they decide to justify their own sin on the basis of your freedom and they have a glass of wine and now they're on, off the wagon and they're in trouble. It's not what it's talking about. What it's talking about is when you invite this um, person who has trouble with alcohol into your house, offering them a glass of wine, serving wine at the dinner table. See, it's a much much more proactive position. It's not just some passive thing, because frankly, there's just about anything that you or I could do in public that somebody's going to look at and can use to justify their sinfulness. And so if we take that superficial, stupid mentality that most legalistic Christians have, that, well, you know, somebody might see me, and that might cause them to sin, you know, you're accepting responsibility for everybody else's sin, and that's the height of arrogance. And yet that appeals to the self-righteous arrogance of legalistic trends of the sin nature, and so so many Christians just love to do that. But you see, that other person also has to be growing or moving in their spiritual life. Moody Monthly put it well, I think one time, it was a cover article back in the mid-70s, and on the front cover of Moody Monthly, the article was entitled, Grow Up, Weaker Brother. And I thought that hit it on the head. See, the, the, most of the people who get offended that somebody else is smoking or drinking or playing cards or going to movies aren't brand new believers who are spiritually immature, but usually it's some seminary professor or some pastor or Sunday school teacher or somebody who is supposedly more mature in the Christian life. And it's just legalism, and it has nothing to do with these verses. But it does show that we are to have an awareness of other people's problems and weaknesses and not uh, contribute to them. We are to be cognizant of those things. And then in Romans 14:9, Paul states, So then let us pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. It's a priority issue. Let's put as a priority the things that are going to contribute towards uh, edification, that is spiritual growth and spiritual maturity. Romans 15:14. Paul comes back and uses the word one another again. 
says, And concerning you, my brethren, I myself also am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able also to admonish one another. Now, I want you to notice the order here. A lot of people just skip over one phrase there and jump to the last and think, oh, we're to admonish one another, and then they start getting in everybody else's business. They see some woman wear tight pants, and they say, well, you know, you shouldn't wear tight pants like that. That just isn't, uh, you know, that's going to get somebody out of line or cause a problem, and you need to go wear uh, some kind of gunny sack or something. And um, see, see, they miss the point that, that precedes that, and that is filled with all knowledge. This is a spiritually mature believer who has a full comprehension of the Word of God, and they have a tremendous amount of doctrine in their soul. And because of that doctrine, they have wisdom that goes along with it, and that wisdom enables them to be able to help a person think through the issues in their life to make biblically sound decisions. The term admonish is from the Greek word nutheteo. Nutheteo. Let me put this on the board and you'll, you'll see the significance of it in a minute. Nutheteo from N-O-U-T-H-E-T-O. And the root here is the N-O-U which comes from the Greek word nous, meaning mentality. It has to do with thinking, helping someone think through life's issues. And this is a foundation that is important, that somebody comes to you and says, you know, I'm having uh, difficulty trying to figure out what to do with my life, or I'm having trouble with what to do with my wife, or I'm having difficulties uh uh, and just with moral problems or whatever it is, then the believer who is uh, oriented to doctrine and has doctrine in the soul is going to be able to give them wise advice and counsel from that frame of reference of doctrine. And that may involve correction, and that's where the idea of admonishment comes in. But this isn't a direction or a license to go around trying to straighten out everybody that you think is doing something wrong or something that isn't beneficial to the body of Christ. But it does indicate that we're to be involved in one another. Now, let me say this as a word of caution in one another. This doesn't mean equally to every other believer. There are some of you that I don't know at all. There are others of you that I know at a superficial level. Others of you I know much better, and some more that I know quite well. Now, we all have those various circles of uh, intimacy. There are those that are within our inner circle. Usually this is no more than five to ten people. Then you have another circle of people that you know, you have some level of casual acquaintance with. And this may be anywhere from 10 to 100 people. Then you have another group of people out there that, that you just uh, basically have a very uh, vague knowledge of. You know their name. You see them at church every now and then. The people that we need to be, that, that we're more... Uh, more concerned with this about is this inner circle because these are the people that have given us by virtue of our friendship by virtue of see the closer you get to somebody the more you give up privacy see if you come and you sit back on one of the back benches there and you never say boo to anybody you're saying that i want to be private and i want to operate on cosmic thinking and be an isolated island and not have anything to do with the body of christ and um and so you're excessively concerned about your privacy. 
But as you get to know some individuals, the more you get close to them, and as you, the closer and closer we get to any other person, the more privacy we voluntarily give up. If you want to be completely private, then you can't get to know anybody or have any relationships with anybody. And so as we get closer and closer to people and build a relationship that is based on trust and confidentiality and is based upon a level of mutual uh, understanding and a mutual relationship, then we get to that point where we are carrying out this one another. Now, as time goes by, other people can and sometimes here or there enter into that sphere for short times or long time, long periods of time. But when it comes to doing things like uh, some of the things we're talking about in this, this particular application, you don't just admonish every Christian you see. You don't have the framework for it. You don't run up to somebody you just saw at church and say, you know, I think I need to admonish you because, you know, your hair just wasn't parted the right way or whatever it might be. So you have to exercise a little discernment and a little wisdom, and that's why it is preceded by the statement full of full of knowledge. It is based upon an understanding and knowledge of God's Word. Paul goes on and uses the phrase one another in Galatians 5.13. There he states, You are called to freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh. That is, don't turn your liberty into license. But through love, serve what? One another. Love is a function to apply that principle of ministry. Paul talked about it's a spiritual gift, but it's also a function of everyone's spiritual life, and that is to serve one another. Uh, Galatians 6.2, he states, bear one another's burdens. Now, you can't do that equally with every believer you could possibly meet. That's impossible. But those that come into your sphere of life to a certain level of intimacy, you can do that. You can encourage them and you can uh, help strengthen them spiritually as they go through various testing. Ephesians 4.2, Paul states, it's with all humility and gentleness and with patience showing forbearance to one another in love. And again, in Ephesians 4.25, Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. See, there's an interdependence and mutuality in the body of Christ. Ephesians 4.32, Be kind to one another. It doesn't cost anything to be kind to somebody, even if they're undeserving, even if they're obnoxious, even if they're antisocial or asocial. One must always be kind, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. See, that's the model. No matter how obnoxious you may think somebody else is, that's nothing compared to how obnoxious God thought you were before you were saved. So if God forgave you, that's the starting point for your uh, forgiveness of other people, and that includes your children, your parents, and your spouse. You know, that's where it gets tough. Sometimes it's hard to, it's easy to forgive people who we don't live with 24 hours a day. 
But for those we live with sometimes, we're, we tend to be uh, a little shorter with our temper, a little more impatient, and we think we can somehow get away with certain kinds of behavior that we wouldn't ever, uh, con- we, or we would never conduct ourselves that way with someone who was a little more of a stranger. But we are to uh, base our uh, attitude on Christ. That is always the model and the standard. Philippians 2.3 Paul states, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. Basic summary, don't be arrogant and self-absorbed. 1 Thessalonians 5.11, therefore encourage one another and build up one another. See, that's a mutual, that's not saying pastor build up the congregation, pastor encourage the congregation. That's talking about the mutual involvement of believer to believer. When you are involved in a relationship with another believer as friends or in a, in a marriage or in a family, that we are to be encouraging and building up one another. First uh, Thessalonians 5.15, see that no one repays one another with evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good for one another and for all men. Of course, you don't know what good is unless you have some level of spiritual maturity in order to have that level of discernment. And then just another passage, First Peter 4.9, be hospitable to one another. We're also commanded to pray for one another, a number of other commandments. So there is this... All of these are based upon the command to love one another, which we have here in 1 John chapter uh, 4, verse 7. So let's go back to our passage. 1 John chapter 4, verse 7, we are to love one another. This is not an option, but this is indicative of reaching that level of spiritual maturity, which is, we will see is necessary to avoid being ashamed at the judgment seat of Christ. Beloved, let us love one another for, he's going to give us the explanation here. The phrase is, for love is from God. It is, the Greek word is hati. It's a causative phrase indicating he's going to give the reason for the command. Love is from God. He's been talking about the fact that the one who loves is of God. The one who does not love is not of God. What he means by that is the one who loves is reflecting his position as a member of the royal family of God and is manifesting the character of his father. The one who is not loving is not acting like a member of the family and is not manifesting the character of his father. I remember when I was a kid, you probably do too, that you would be told by your parents that you needed to dress a certain way and behave a certain way because it reflected upon them. And people would look at you and judge you as a small child and judge your parents on the basis of how you behaved. Well, that's the same idea that Paul is stating here. That is because you're a member of the royal family of God, you are to comport yourself a certain way. And if you don't, you're not acting like a member of the family. You're acting like uh, you're a member of some other family, that is the family of the devil. So we are to love one another because love is from God. It is uniquely from God, and it is that unique attribute that only God can produce in us. That is why it's listed as the first of the fruits of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5. The fruit of the Spirit is first love. 
It can only be produced by God. It can't be manufactured. It's not emotion or sentiment. And we've seen this many times, that it's not whatever you think it is, because for most of us, when we think about love, our starting point isn't Christ on the cross. It's some sort of emotion or feeling or sentiment or some uh, romantic involvement. It's not Christ hanging on the cross as a substitute for us. That, as we saw back in chapter 3, is the starting point in verse 16. By this we know love, because he laid down his life as a substitute for us. Jesus said in John 13, 34, and 35 that love is the unique sign of somebody who is a disciple, that is, an advancing, growing, maturing believer. It is not something that is there automatically when you're first saved. Love is from God. It has its ultimate source in God. Ek plus the genitive indicates that God and God alone is the ultimate source of this category of love. And then he adds to the statement, he says, And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. So he's going to say two things. He talks, starts off talking about everyone who loves. And everyone who loves is a present active participle with a definite article. Ha is a definite article, and the uh, participle is agapone. And because it has the article, it's taken substantively. It's the person who loves, or the lover, the one who loves. Now, this is going to be further modified by a perfect active or perfect passive indicative of the verb ganao. Now, I know this is going to maybe bore some of you, but this is critical exegesis at this point. Uh, ganao, which means to be born. The perfect tense indicates the present reality of a past action. So the past action would be faith alone in Christ alone, and the present reality is now you are a bona fide member born into the royal family of God. So John says here, the one who loves is born of God, because if love is uniquely from God, only someone who's a member of his family can demonstrate that kind of love, and no one else can demonstrate that kind of love. But I want you to notice something here, because John uses this kind of grammatical structure several times, and and he will always when he the 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 three times or four times he states this, the present participle indicates the result of a past action, and that past action is the one who is born again. The one who's a believer. So you have a born-again one, and John says they love. But he doesn't say that every born-again person loves. He doesn't say that that because you're born again, you can love or must love, or if you're not loving, you weren't born again. He's making a positive assertion that only the person who loves can be born again. Because this is uniquely produced by God. If you see someone producing love, then that means they were born again. But if you don't see the love, it doesn't mean they weren't born again. Okay, you gotta follow that. So he uses the same structure back in, um, 
back in chapter 2, verse 29, where he states, If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone also who practices or who does righteousness is born of him. Same structure. See, just because you're born doesn't mean you do righteousness, but you can't do righteousness unless you've first been regenerated. You can't love unless you've been regenerated. Only regenerate people are going to love and do righteousness, but not all regenerate people are going to love and do righteousness. That's what the whole purpose of the epistle is, is because you're not necessarily going to do that if you're regenerate. So you better, and if you don't do it, you're going to uh, have shame at the judgment seat of Christ. So here John is stating that those who love have been born from God. Now, there are two conditions for loving. First is that they've been regenerate, they've been born of God. And second, they know God. See, we saw this in our study in John 14, that, that Jesus told Philip in John 14:9 that, Philip, have I been with you so long you still don't know me? See, Philip was saved, but he didn't know Jesus. So you can, we, we often want to think that knowing God equals salvation, but knowing God is related to an advanced or mature spiritual life. You have to be saved first before you can ever learn anything about God from His Word, and you have to learn a lot about a person before you know the person. And so knowing God indicates spiritual growth and spiritual advance. So John says those who love are first of all born of God, they're regenerate, and secondly, they have advanced to a certain level of maturity to know God, not just to know things about God. Now, this sets us up for what John's going to say in verse 8, and we don't have near enough time to get into that, so we're going to close at the end of verse 7 and come back next time, start working through uh, verse 8 as to the implication of this for spiritual maturity. The point we need to recognize is that love is a product of spiritual growth. And it's what we're going to see is related to knowing God. Therefore, it's related to having a personal love for God the Father. And that only starts to come along as you reach a certain level of spiritual maturity beyond spiritual adolescence. Problem is, the Scripture seems to indicate, it's not too many people make it past spiritual adolescence because they're still hung up on self-absorption and living for today and not living for eternity. And you, we have to get past that point of living for, etern- for uh, living for today and start living for eternity before we really start implementing or start actuating what the Scripture means about loving God and knowing God. Therefore, my conclusion from this is, since all of this is built around how to avoid being ashamed of the judgment seat of Christ, if we don't get past self-absorption and arrogance and into an understanding of what it means to love God and to love one another then we're really going to be embarrassed when it comes to the judgment seat of Christ. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to study your word this morning and to be challenged by the uh, importance of learning what it means to, to know you, not just learning facts about you, but on the basis of those facts, developing an, an, an ongoing fellowship and rapport, knowing you and developing that personal love for you, that we may stand unashamed at the judgment seat of Christ. But first, Father, is the important issue of regeneration, and we pray that if there's anyone here this morning who's unsure of their eternal destiny or uncertain of their eternal life, that they would take this opportunity to make that sure and certain. All you need to do right where you sit right now is believe Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. 
Salvation is a free gift. You don't do anything to earn it or deserve it. You don't get it by joining a church or making a bargain with God or morally reforming your life. You get it simply by accepting what somebody else did for you. Jesus Christ died on the cross as a substitute for your sins that you might have eternal life. Therefore, your decision is simply to accept it or to reject it. Scripture says, He who believes on Him is not condemned, but the one who does not believe is condemned already. Father, we pray that you would challenge each of us with the things that we have studied this morning. Help us to understand them. May they motivate us in our spiritual growth and advance. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.